Please take your seats. We thought it was Morris, everyone said. What's Will doing there? Well, Morris has asked, before he comes to preach, that we uh, just camp around and read the whole of chapter 9. Okay, so we're in Hebrews, we're in our Hebrews series, uh, and this is chapter 9, Worship in the Earthly Tabernacle, and this is from the NIV version. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship, and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In the first room, there were lampstands and a table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, uh, for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonial and clean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. <clears throat> this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, 
This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with, with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Amen. Let's welcome Morris, shall we? Come on, Morris. Well, good morning to you all. It's been uh, four years since I worshipped with you at um, Junction 10, and we're delighted to be with you this morning, of course. Uh, but just tell me something, I can't work it out. Why is it after four years, you lot don't look any older than I do? <laughs> it must be something to do with the Junction 10 air, uh, I think. Okay, now you've been journeying through uh, Hebrews. Have you enjoyed your journey? Yeah. It's gone well so far, right? Oh, that's good. Well, let's carry on with that this morning. It's a real treasure store, really, isn't it, Hebrews? It's the biblical book of superlatives. Better than, greater than, superior to, depends which uh, version of the Bible that you read. But these, all these betters and greaters, they are superseding the old, the old tired practices, the old customs, the old traditions, and making them obsolete. So something has come along in Hebrews that has really made the old covenant obsolete. You know the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, we could say it's the old covenant, and it's the new covenant. Well, the old covenant told us a bit about the new covenant that was to come, but the new covenant has arrived, hallelujah, and that means that the old covenant of such has now been superseded by what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, what I want us to do is to um, ha uh, have a look and see, remind ourselves of some of the things that have been superseded. Now a lot that I'm going to say this morning you will have heard over the years and you've probably heard some of it in the series you're doing and you'll hear more next week and the week after. So don't think I'm coming thinking well, I'm going to teach them something they don't know. I'm just reminding you 
of things that you've known over the years. Now, many of the first century Christians or Jews had become Christians. I suppose today we'd call them Messianic Jews, wouldn't we? Because they had realized, they had discovered that this risen Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah they'd been looking for for a very, very long time. And they realized that because of his sacrificial death and resurrection, they could live in a totally new season, the season of God's grace, the season of God's unmerited favor to all sinners. I'm glad we're in that season today, aren't you? Oh, hallelujah. Now, I can get a bit excited when I preach sometimes, so don't worry if I get too excited. You know, it says in Scripture, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? We didn't have to improve. Just as we were, Christ died for us. And they'd realized that. And so they began to follow Jesus. They put on one side Judaism. And it seems that also things were going well. But unfortunately, not everybody liked that. These people who would follow Judaism... In fact, it had been going for about 1,500 years, and now these renegades had actually dared to leave it and to follow Christ. And they had tremendous persecution. Uh, persecution. They were despised, and they were having a very, very hard time. So much so that some of them had thought, is it worth it? Is it worth carrying on? We had an easier life before, but we've got much better now, but we can't stand the persecution. It's hard, it's difficult. Folks, life is hard and difficult at times, isn't it? And we will get persecution from time to time. And the writer to the Hebrews, he said, hey, come on, think about what you've got. Think about this new thing that you've got in Christ Jesus. Think about this new life. Think, think about you've been forgiven totally of all your sins, that's better than anything you've had before. He says, what you have in Christ is better than anything you've ever had or is better than anything you'll ever get. And that is so. That is still the same today. What we have in Christ is better than what we had before we came to him. That doesn't mean to say everything's gone right. That doesn't mean to say the way's been easy. But it does mean we've come through. We've survived. Why have we survived? Because we're big and brave. No, Christ within us, the hope of glory, has brought us through the difficult situation. And you may be there's someone here this morning, and you're there. You're in a difficult situation. You feel almost like giving up. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. What you have is better than what you had before, and it's better than what you'll find anywhere else. Because what we have is only found in Christ Jesus. He is the key. Hallelujah. He is the one that changes everything. He is the life giver. Paul said, you used to live under the law of sin and death, and they did. The old covenant was a law of sin and death. He said, but now something's happened, and there's a new law. And the new Lord is the spirit of life. Hallelujah. And we have the spirit of life. You know, the Bible says 
the Holy Spirit is a life-giving spirit. And without a life-giving spirit, we are dead. A meeting without the Holy Spirit is dead. But when the Spirit moves in worship and that, something happens. We come alive, something within us. And these folks, I experienced all that. Well, they felt they needed to give up. If some angel of mercy would get me a drink of water, I'd be very happy about that. Now then, oh, sorry, thank you. When I, uh, when, I was a, when I was a young Christian, there were two books of the Bible I didn't, I didn't read. Anybody tell me what they were? Revelation. Revelation. And, and uh, well, you're nearly there. Yeah, and uh, Hebrews. Because I couldn't understand it, you know. I mean, Revelation, I didn't know what was symbolic and what was real. Couldn't work it out. Um, uh, when we used to do the prison ministry... The chaplain one day gave all the prisoners in our group a New Testament. And we said to them, now read that, start at Mark's Gospel. So we found the page, told them the page, Mark's Gospel, and then you'll have an idea of what Jesus is like and what he did, etc. So when we went the next week, we said, how did you get on? Couldn't understand it, boss. You couldn't understand it. You read Mark and you couldn't understand anything. No. Well, we thought Revelation was the end. We'd find out what happened in the end. <laughs> so we started in Revelation. So I said, and you couldn't understand it? He said, no. I said, I can't understand it either. But don't tell the chaplain. You see, and Hebrews, we need to have an idea of the old Levitical system before we can understand what it says. And that's exactly what I want to do as we do with this this morning. Now, as a, okay, okay, yeah, a greater salvation, uh, if we can just have that for the moment, love, okay, a greater salvation, Hebrews chapter 9. Now, when we, re, when we look at any scripture, there's three questions we've got to keep in our mind. One is, what does it say? Well, you know what it says, because Wilf has, re, uh, Will has read it, okay? And the second question we have to ask is, what does it mean? So, as he read it, did we all get the meaning? I'm sure we got some meanings here, there, and everywhere. I'm sure we did. And the third thing we've got to bear in mind is, when I've heard what it said, when I know what it means, what have I got to, what have I got to do? How is it going to apply to me? How does this affect my life? Because if it doesn't, well, we're going to have to think again. So, our topic is a greater salvation. But to look at it, we've got to look at some of the greaters as well. So, with help, a greater sanctuary. And then, there's a greater sacrifice. This is the perfect one. It was a one-off, one only. And then, there was a greater salvation through a great saviour. And finally, it hasn't ended. There's a greater expectation coming along as well. So, okay, so very quickly, let's whisk through those. Now, really, the writer to the Hebrews is spelling out the inefficiency and the inadequacy of the Levitical system of worship. It was tri-complicated, very complicated. 
there were loads of rules, about 613 as a matter of fact, and you've got to keep those. I tell you, aren't you glad we didn't live under those, eh? They couldn't do it, could they? So why did God tell them to do it? He wanted man to find out that without him there was no salvation. There's no DIY. There's no doing good to get to heaven. It just doesn't work that way. They tried it, and it, it, it was ineffective, ineffective. Now, you probably remember the tabernacle. If you remember that Moses led the children of Israel after 400 years of slavery out of Egypt and into the wilderness, and uh, God wanted to meet with them. So, he tells Moses to set up this mobile church, which is called, the which we call the tabernacle. And the idea was that in this tabernacle, God would meet with his people, inverted commas, physically, God would meet with them there. Tell you a little bit about it uh, in a minute. But the real reason is for the tabernacle, because God, almighty God, wanted man to access him. He wanted there to be a relationship. I think that's good, don't you? You know, the great creator became my saviour, and he certainly did. And that's who is our saviour this morning. We have a great God. We don't understand one bit, do we really, of how great he is, you know. We, we, we take his, oh yes, yes. But he's something to get excited about. If we can't get excited about God, we'll never get excited about anything really because he has done so much. And there in, in that time, he wanted to meet with them, but there was a problem. And the problem was, what do you tell me? Why couldn't God and man meet? Anybody tell me? What separates us from God? Absolutely, I knew you knew the answer. There was a sin problem. And unless that problem was dealt with, there was going to be no connection at all. And the Levitical system really was set up to deal with the sin problem of mankind or to show that it needed to be, it needed to be dealt with. Sin was a barrier between us and God. Still is, folks. We can't enjoy the blessing of God if there's sin in our lives. We have to deal with it. That's an ugly word in it, sin. Somebody told me you should never mention the word sin in church. So I said, I better stop preaching then because <laughs> I can't preach the gospel without. It's impossible, isn't it? It is an ugly word, but it describes an ugly thing, something that will separate us from a loving God that will condemn us to a Christless hell. That's pretty ugly. That's pretty dangerous sort of thing. But that's what we're talking about. And the Lord wanted them to see how desperate, how he saw sin and what a dreadful thing it was. And so, if you remember, there's this scripture. Now, I'm going to quote some strong and powerful verses. They may be offensive to some, but I'm telling you what the scripture says. It says in Ezekiel, the soul that sins is the one that will die. When we come over to the New Testament, Paul puts it a different way. He said, the wages of sin is death. He's saying, okay, 
we can sin to our heart's content if we like, but there's a penalty, and the penalty is death. That means eventually eternal separation from God. Yeah, we can go our own way, we've got a choice, but there's a penalty with it. And Paul says the wages of sin is death, but, and there's a huge but there, I like those big buts of scripture, don't you? But the gift of God is eternal life. So there's pardon and there's a gift from God. But we've all sinned, we know that. And there's this scripture, for the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. Now, if you're, if you're a vegetarian, I'm sorry, uh, but we may think that God gave the animals and that for our human consumption to feed us. No, that wasn't the prime reason. The prime reason was this, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The message that he was getting across to us, that without atonement, without the shedding of blood, without a loss of life, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So let's have a, let me have a quick look at the tabernacle. Okay, can you give us the next slide? This is what the tabernacle looked like. Okay, it, it was a portable tent. That, oh, where's my little thing? Oh, uh, um, I've discovered you have to switch this on before it works. See the little red dot? That, that, that thing there, that was the portable tent, as it were, the tabernacle. And it was, it was this fence that went all the way around it, about seven and a half feet, that was to keep people out, okay? And uh, here, he got some doors. And if anybody sinned, they had to bring an offering. So they brought the offering to the priest who would be there, Sometimes the person who'd sinned had to slaughter the animal. I wouldn't like that, would you? Oh, I would absolutely hate that. And I would have hated to have been a priest in those days. God's been very gracious to me. He's given me my chance now. And so there they were. And they had to bring this. And without that shedding the blood, it says there was no atonement. Okay? There were a lot of them. We can't look at all those. But there was one special day. Do you know what the most special day in the Jewish year is? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That was the day. Now, folks, in this little over here, this part, this is the tabernacle. There was movable, they get up. There were two parts. There was the first part, that's that bit there, little bit of furniture in there, uh, a table with some bread on it, and a lamp and an altar. But this part was called the Holy of Holies, and that was where God was, okay? He came down there. You know how, when the queens in Buckingham Palace, they fly the Union Jack? 
Well, when God was there, there was a cloud during the day and there was a pillar of fire during the night. Letting them know that he was there and that was in the midst of all the tents. There were probably about one and a half million and there they were in the middle and they could all see the tabernacle from where they were, reminding them that God was there. But he was a holy God. And the priests, the normal priests could come in this part any time, but that part, the Holy of Holies, once a year, and only once a year. And the ordinary priest couldn't do it. And us lot, we weren't even near it. We, we couldn't even touch the tabernacle. We were miles away from it. But there, once a year, the high priest used to go in, he, he used to take a sacrifice for his own sin, and uh, when he'd done that, he used to sacrifice for the people. And they used to have two goats, and uh, they would kill one goat, and it's, it's complicated the way they did it, so I'm not going to go through that. They used to kill the goat, collect the blood, and that had to be taken in to that inner sanctuary once a year. And that atoned for Israel's sin just for the 12-month period. Okay? Notice what I said. It atoned for their sin. It did not take it away. It covered it. And what the high priest used to do, he used to go in, there was in the only furniture in the Holy of Holies was the ark. That was a picture that first came up. And he used to, the, on the top was a lid with two angels, and that was called the mercy seat. And that's where God accepted the high priest, and he accepted the sacrifice of blood. And the high priest, that was the scariest day of his life, because if he did one thing wrong, he was a goner. And they used to put a rope on the high priest's leg, and the ordinary priests couldn't go in the tabernacle at all on the Day of Atonement, let alone the Holy Fathers. They used to put a rope on his leg in case if anything happened to him in there, they could pull him out. So holy was the presence of God. Okay? We serve a holy God who hates sin, but he's a merciful God. And he's done something about sin. So, we need a greater sacrifice. Okay? Yeah, the cross obliterates that. Makes it obsolete. Right? Can I have the next slide? Look. Okay. Okay. A greater sacrifice. That's lovely. Now, Hebrews 10, verse 4, I've pinched one of the verse from uh, Willis next week. For it's not possible that the blood and bulls of goats could take away sins. There were thousands of sacrifices, bulls, goats, doves, but their blood was only atonement for their sin. It only covered it. It gave them ceremonial cleansing. It would never, it would never make them righteous before God. It needed a better sacrifice. 
And these in the Old Testament, they symbols of something better that was to come in the New Testament. You know, Isaiah, he tells us a little bit about the perfect sacrifice. Listen to what he says. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him not, smitten of God and afflicted. That's he's talking about Jesus, as you know. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. That was the kind of sacrifice they needed. But of course, they hadn't got it. They just got animals. And I'll put in my notes here, no animal sacrifice ever cleared a person's conscience of the guilt and shame of sin. That's what he says in Hebrews. No animal sacrifice ever gave the person the power to resist sin. No animal sacrifices provided help and healing for griefs or sorrows. No animal sacrifice wiped out any sin and iniquity. No animal sacrifice gave permanent peace. No animal sacrifice provided healing for the whole man, body, soul, mind and spirit. No animal sacrifice provided everlasting atonement. No animal sacrifice delivered a righteousness acceptable to God. If salvation and deliverance from the wrath of a holy God was to be possible, then there needed a better sacrifice. Hallelujah! There was one that had already been put in place before the God even created the first blade of grass. And that, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ. All these sacrifices in the Old Testament were symbolic of one that was to come. And one day, Jesus was having a stroll along the Jordan Riverside Walk, and John the Baptist was there, and he stops. And John says, hey, look, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the whole world. What a sacrifice. One animal would sacrifice just for one person. When they had the scapegoat, that was a little bit different. That was for the nation. But this other sacrifice that was going to come along, this Lamb of God, he was going to be different. It wasn't for the sin of one man. It wasn't for the sin of a nation. It was for the sin of every person from every tribe and every nation and every tongue, everybody everywhere. That sacrifice would do it. And it was a one only sacrifice. He didn't have to do it every year. Once for all, it was done. The work was done. You know, in the fullness of time, yes, your sins, my sins, perfect timing, it had come. And it was the blood, not of an animal, but the blood of a perfect man. And there's only one perfect man. Ladies, I know your husband's perfect. But to be truthful, there's only one per there was only ever one perfect man. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was guiltless. He was innocent. And just as an innocent animal had to be slaughtered, he, the Lamb of God, the innocent, perfect, so lovely Son of God, he had to die that we might live. Hallelujah. No wonder we sing, what a saviour. 
that he was willing to do that. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. When we didn't care, when we couldn't care less about God, Jesus took action for us, and we want to bless his name for that. And folks, excuse me, it wasn't just atonement for sin. Oh no, he removed it. Blotted out, the Bible says, is blotted out. And I don't care who you are this morning. I don't care what you've done, what you've been, for how long. The blood of Jesus Christ will never, has never lost its power. And when you come to him and you're forgiven, you are forgiven. It has been wiped off the slate. Absolutely clear. Because Jesus' blood is so powerful. And without the blood of Jesus, there is no salvation. We can't get to heaven in any other way other than that. Listen to what Peter says. You must recognize and know that the ransom paid to free you from the futile, futile way of life your fathers passed on to you didn't consist of anything like silver or gold. On the contrary, it was the sacrificial death and precious blood of the Messiah as a lamb without defect and spot. The perfect sacrifice once and for all. That is absolutely wonderful. And folk, this morning, you remember when Jesus died on the cross? What did he say? It's finished. There's nothing to be added. It's all done. It's all complete. We've just got to accept it. How lovely that is. And I don't care whatever we may have done. And for however long we may have done it. I know this. That in Christ this morning, there is redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. And if you've been held, held by some habit or some addiction or something like that, there was no power in the blood of animals to free you, but the freedom in Christ. He is the name that sets the prisoner free. One of the songs, one of the hymns we used to sing is, Jesus the name, he sets the prisoner free. And if you're a prisoner this morning, why going on being a prisoner when the sacrifice has been paid, when the job has been done? Well, our, t our time has gone. But let me just mention this to you very quickly, the last two. I put a greater saviour. You know, you can't have a creation without a creator. And you can't have salvation without a saviour. And thank God, our sacrifice was our saviour. The only one acceptable to God, he, there he was. You know, before Jesus came, there had never been a saviour. Oh yes, people had delivered Israel out of difficulty. Moses and Samson and Deborah and Barak and that. But none of them could forgive a single sin. And until Jesus came, there had never been a saviour. Oh, how did the folks in the Old Testament get saved then? Well, they looked by faith towards the cross. Today, we look by faith backwards to the cross. It's happened. We live in the day 
when we can know without a certain fact, w w without any hesitation, that God is our Saviour. The only one who could save from their sins. Jesus was the first, and I want to say that Jesus was the last. There's never going to be another Saviour. Today, there's only one name whereby we may be saved, and it's not Donald Trump or Donald Tusk or Justin Welby or Pope Francis or Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn, Joseph Smith or Butter. It's Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except... Oh, I must have my ears done properly. No man comes to the Father except... Through me, hallelujah. You know, in our frenzies, frenzied political correct society, that would be classed as, politi as politically incorrect. Do you know I couldn't care less? Why? Because it's divinely correct. And that's what matters at the end of the day. It's God that's the judge. We are privileged to know that we can come to Christ. No religion, whether it's Judaism, Islam... Um, or, or, or even Christianity. No religion is our saviour. Our saviour is a person, God's only son. You know, I sometimes said to, I've said to folks, no religion can give us peace with God, but I know a man who can. And thanks, we don't only know about him, we know him. What a change this sacrifice has made. There they were stuck in that tent once a year, only getting to God's presence. And we, as the scripture says, because of what Jesus did, he's gone to a new sanctuary, a heavenly sanctuary, one that is, and he didn't need a sacrificial blood, his own blood was fine. He's there with the Father. But there's something else, folks. There's an even closer sanctuary than that. Anybody tell me where it is? Anybody tell me? <coughs> Gemma? Absolutely. What does the scripture say? We are temples or tabernacles of the Holy Spirit, Christ within us, the hope of glory. Do you think that's marvellous? From being totally sort of not looked upon by God because of our sin, now he chooses to dwell within us. That is a miracle. You know, people say, we want to see some miracles. Yeah, I'd like to see some miracles. But we see a miracle every time somebody genuinely gets saved. The God dwelling in them, the hope of glory. And what the animal sacrifices couldn't do, Jesus has done. It's not our righteousness that we parade. It's his righteousness, isn't it? Everything we need is in Christ. You know that song that we sing, in Christ alone my hope is found. I would say, in Christ alone my everything is found. It is all in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful saviour he is. How wonderful we are. And if we confess our sin, the Bible says, is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those Old Testament sacrifices didn't do that. And the writer to the Hebrews says, hey, come on, folks. We've got something superior to that. 
We don't want to go back to that because there's nothing in it. It will bring us down. Jesus described it as heavy burdens. It'll bring us down and down. But if you come to me, I will lift you up. And in conclusion, because our time has gone, I want to say this, that not only is, he a, is there a great saviour, that isn't the end, there's a great expectation. When you come to the end of that, of that b- b- book, it says this, it's appointed unto men once to die. Anybody looking forward to that? No, I don't think so. We know we're okay in Christ, but we like life, don't we? We love life. Listen. What if you'd have died last night? Where would you be this morning? Would you be in heaven? Or would you be somewhere else? It is only those that have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that can be assured of heaven. We need to get that right. But he tells us something else as well, that this saviour, this one that came as a saviour, is coming back. Do you know, that's the most sure thing. People say, oh, you Christians, you've been talking about that for 2,000 years, and it's never happened. And I remember someone said to me once, look how long you've been a Christian. It's never happened. I said to him, well, since I've been a Christian, it's 60 years nearer now than what it was then. And it is facts. It is true. Christ is coming again. Does not fill you with hope in the mixed up world in which we have, where it's topsy-turvy. He will reign. Hallelujah. King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's our saviour. And the writer of Hebrews said, hey, you want to leave what you've got now for that? It's no deal. No deal. This is it. In Christ. Now when you go back home, read that chapter again. And you'll find that the things that you read will make sense. Okay? Now I'm sorry I've had to rush it and there's a lot more that I had to say. Uh, but uh, I've been very good and I've kept to my time. So the Lord bless you. Thank you for being such good listeners. And we have a great saviour. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.